All right, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. I forgot my Bible. It's on the seat, but it's okay. Uh, John chapter 11, I have it written down. And uh, this is the week after Easter, and um, this is kind of the, now things are back to normal, is what it sometimes can feel like. Last week was so incredible. It was awesome just to celebrate the resurrection with you, with our community. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But today I want to kind of explore um, a story that you might often hear after Easter, but I want to actually rewind about 10 chapters before what we see take place after the resurrection, where Jesus reappears, I actually want to rewind it a little bit and look in John chapter 11, where this character named Thomas, whose life we'll explore a little bit, has this moment while Jesus is on his way to resurrect Lazarus. You might have heard the name Lazarus before. He's a character, he's a friend, and Jesus loves him a ton, and we, we kind of pick up in this story where Jesus hears that Lazarus is asleep. And so he's like, let's go, let's go figure this thing out. So in verse 11 of John chapter 11, he says this, or he says, after Jesus, after he had see, said all of these things, he went on to tell them, his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples were like, Jesus, hey, guess what? The thing is, is when you fall asleep, it's probably because you're tired, you need rest, maybe you're not feeling well, rest is going to do it. So why don't we let him sleep and he will get better. Jesus, though, had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, guys, I was, I was using code to kind of soften the blow, Laz, our, our bro, he's dead. He's dead. Sorry to break it to you. (laughs) Your boy is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go so we can die too. So Thomas, (laughs) we're all going to die. Let us also go that we may die with him too. Now, skip forward nine chapters to John chapter 20. We'll read in verse 24. Jesus now has resurrected, and he's already, a week, he's already appeared to the disciples and to Mary. He's appeared, he's shown up, but Thomas was not there. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, so you see these two names again. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The same greeting he gave the first time. Peace be with you. Then he turns and says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting believe. Thomas said to him, Lord, my God, it's you. And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed, though, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to speak today on this idea for the next few minutes, not what I was looking for. Not what I was looking for. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not what I was looking for today. But you'll do. 
Turn to your other neighbor and say, but you, you're what I was looking for today. Hey, would you bow your heads with me and would you close your eyes and let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit who's already here in the room to speak to us and to change us from the inside out as we go today. Lord, we, we thank you for your presence that's here in this room. And uh, we just believe that what you said is true, God, that where two or more are gathered in your name, you are here in our midst. So we acknowledge your presence right now, but we also ask, God, that you would uh, you'd speak to us and that we'd hear what you have to say. God, we don't want it to go in one ear and out the other. God, we want it to take root in us. And God, I pray for anyone who right now is struggling with any kind of fear or anxiety or doubt or decision that's ahead that is daunting. God, any, any, any kind of fear or, or, or worry, God, would you meet them where they're at today? Would you invite them into your presence? In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Anyone ever here had someone that you love or you still do, that you, you deeply, you dearly love them, but you are afraid to take them to a restaurant with you? Because you know that while at the table, they will, it's not a question of if, it is a question of when, they will embarrass you throughout the course of the meal. Anyone? Anyone have someone like that? Like, is anyone, this person, or perhaps married to the person who, who, says, who says to the server, hey, do you have a couple minutes? I've got some questions about the menu. Anybody? Is, is, is that anyone here? You have questions about the menu, and you have the audacity to ask I was a server, it is, it is the quickest way to get your server to hate you is when you ask them a question that they don't want to answer. What, how do you like this? I don't care, I hate working here, I don't like, I know one of our core values, Red Robin, is fun, but we don't have fun here, okay. And, and, and this certain person that lives with me will sometimes, they will, they will sometimes ask, They'll, they will go down the menu and ask about each thing and get what they had already decided anyways. And, and at this point, I'm usually like, I just need to get up and go to the bathroom because this angst is going to, it's going to break something in me. But it's funny because I'm the same way, but on the, on the flip side. Because I order the same exact thing everywhere I go. If you know me, you know what it is. I'm getting... Unless it's at a taco place, I'm getting a bacon cheeseburger. I know I have a six-year-old's taste, and my kids have taken after me. I am, I, I, I order the same thing. I order a bacon cheeseburger, but what I do, and this is verbatim what I do. Can I get the bacon cheeseburger, medium rare? But I want crispy bacon. Now, you might be thinking, okay, crispy bacon, well done burger. No, what I want, and I draw a cr- contrast. And I take them through this process where they understand that I want my burger medium rare or rare, but I want my bacon crispy. So I'll say, so you might be thinking, you know, you might be thinking the, the bacon underdone just like the meat, or you might be thinking the meat well done just like the, the bacon, but I want to make sure that you remember when you go to punch in the order that it is crispy bacon, rare meat. Crispy bacon, rare meat. But also, all I want is meat, cheese, and bacon, and avocado if you have it. But here's the other thing. Some places like to put pickles on a skewer and set it on the side of the plate. I'm going to ask that you not do that because what happens, some of you know this pain. What happens 
is you put a pickle on the side of the plate and the juice runs into the bottom of the bun. It, it taints several fries and, and, in, in, and it starts to cook the burger with the pickle juice, and now there's nothing on the plate that I can taste that doesn't have the tainting of pickles. So, server, what I want to make sure is that when you go to put that pickle on there, you refrain. One last customization, please. I would like my fries extra crispy as well. And the whole time, Noel's just like, oh my goodness. But, but does anyone have someone like that? Like, every, like they're never going to order things as they're meant to be? That's me. Right or 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 here's the, here's the worst. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna trigger some people this morning. Here's the worst. You got someone in your family, maybe your your in-laws or your parents. I may have several relatives that do this. They will wave the server down by waving at them. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Be like, oh, oh, what? And and me and my me and Cameron, my brother, will be at the restaurant like, mom, you're not supposed to what? I was just trying to get their attention. I have a question. No, this is not what you do. Are, are there any servers, do you know the pain that I feel right now? Because what you're supposed to do is you just kind of give, well not, or if your hand is on the edge of the table, you can raise your pinky a little bit. Just to get their attention. Because you what you're not trying to do is signal to the entire restaurant that the server that is serving your table is incompetent. And that is what you do when you wave them down. I'm helping so many people today. You don't wave them down. You wait for them to come to you. You wave your pinky or you give them a little wink, okay? You don't draw attention to them. And there are certain people, like I will avoid, at, like th- this, is, this is the process that we'll go through. Do we want to go out to eat at this place with them out of fear of what might happen while we're at the table with them? Because they, they have a reputation. That's the truth. They earned that's just a reputation that they had. It's a reputation they earned. And it's fascinating with Thomas, right? Thomas has this reputation. If you've heard the term, does anyone know it? What's, what his reputation is? Doubting Thomas, right? And I don't know that his friends ever called him that, but this is the reputation that he got throughout church history. They call, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? I mean, imagine your worst quirk or characteristic being the tag that follows you around. Whenever someone says they, your name, they say that negative characteristic about you, right? Like boring Brian or something. Sorry if you're Brian. Or sarcastic Serena. I don't know. I'm making these up. And you've got your name, but they, they attach the worst part of your reputation to you, and you can't escape it anymore. Like, imagine that fatal flaw being the thing that everyone, when they say your name, this is what they think. So we've got Doubting Thomas. I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap because he's a significant character in the New Testament church. Now, you read in both of these passages here where John intentionally uses two names. There's Thomas and there's Didymus. Thomas is the Greek name and Didymus is the Aramaic name. They both mean the word twin. Now, we have no evidence one way or another as to whether he had a twin or a brother, so we're left to assume that it is either he had a twin and he's one, or we're left to assume that it was a nickname. More likely, what we can believe is that he probably had, uh, it was probably just a nickname, and depending on which room he was in, he might be called Didymus or might be called Thomas. 
However, it's not too consequential, but it kind of points to what we see about the life of Thomas that we're going to explore. But Thomas is, like I said, a significant character. He's one of the 12 disciples. He would go on after Jesus' death and resurrection. He would go on to plant churches in India. He was a significant character. It's believed by many church historians that he was martyred due to his faith. So he's, he's, he is consequential when it comes to his influence on the New Testament church. But it's fascinating because you looked at the Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Synoptic Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's barely a mention. He's just kind of a, like, he's, he's an extra in, in he's like the, the 12th disciple who he never really gets mentioned. He's there. It's like, good man. Like, you ever had a friend who was like, they were an extra in a movie, and it's all they... I don't know, like that would be me. I would love to be an extra in a movie someday and I would tell you about it until my last breath. Like, <laughs> hey, I was in a movie once. I got to walk by, I had some friends who, he, they got to walk by, uh, by a, a train station in a movie and they each got paid $50 when they were like 11 years old and I was like, oh my gosh, that is my dream, right? And this is Thomas, he's, he's an extra in the Synoptic Gospels but it's fascinating because in John's Gospel, He's a feature. He's a main character. And John is intentional about how he portrays Thomas's role in this gospel story. He's intentional to paint a picture not only about Thomas and his significance, but about his reputation. It's as if, and I wonder if, 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 if Thomas would have ever read the letter that John wrote, if they would have been hanging out and be like, bro, what, what, you, you did me dirty, bro. Like, why are you making everyone think that I'm just this psycho who never believes anything? You painted this picture like I'm a cynic and a skeptic and a, and a pessimist and a doubter because he, he was. But John isn't doing this because he's trying to, though he will at many times say, the disciple who Jesus loved, referring to himself, which is a whole nother story. But he's not trying to lower Thomas so much as set up the reader to see what happens at the end of the story. So you see that he paints this picture, Thomas, doubter, pessimist, negative Nancy, and he's this guy. And you look at John chapter 11 where he has this moment. And Thomas, as he says to the other disciples, let's go follow Jesus, we're going to die anyways. We don't actually know if Thomas in this moment is referring to let's go die like Lazarus is dead or let's go die like Jesus is implying that he will. Either way, he's got this perspective, uh, well, we're gonna die, might as well go with him. And he's got this negative perspective. And what John wants the reader to be able to understand and identify with is the doubt that Thomas expresses here, so much so to where he doesn't even feel the need to resolve it yet. This is fascinating. Because he'll resolve it eventually, but at this point in the letter and in this story, he doesn't say that Jesus pulled, I mean, I imagine it. Like, you ever imagine some of the side conversations that Jesus would have had? Hey, Tom, Tommy, Tommy, come over here, bro. Let's, let's have a chat, man. Um, it just it seems, um, seems, just, just bear with me, it seems. Like, you're always super negative, bro. Like, and... I feel like by now, you should get it. You should get it. Because I'm doing really great stuff, and 
I'm kind of God and things like that. And, and, and I tend to do what I say, like for the most part at least. Like, Tommy, bro, like what is going on, you know? But he doesn't, doesn't do that. We don't see any kind of side conversations. Jesus keeps moving. Thomas has his moment of doubt. And John sees it fit to not address anything about the doubt. And here's what we've done in the church is we have tried to meet, and I I want to repent of this because I've done it, especially in the last few years of what has happened in our world and the questions that are coming up from within the church and people who feel like the church has missed some things. And what what we do is we try and counteract doubt with answers. And sometimes what you need to do is actually just meet doubt where it is and not feel the need to urgently answer the questions that might not even need an answer yet. And what I love about John here and what I love about Jesus is that he acknowledges the doubt. He's gearing up for a solution, but he leaves the doubt where it is with patience and not being in a hurry to solve it. And I want to tell you today, if you are doubting or in fear or anxiety or any kind of like trepidation as you look to the future, God is ready to answer, but he's not in a hurry to solve everything as if it needs to be fixed right now. He's actually content to walk slowly. Think about it. Jesus did not be like, guys, Lazzie, he's dead. We better hurry. Because there's like a five-second rule when it comes to death and resurrection. He's not running. He's like, all right. Lazzie's asleep. He's trying to like, he doesn't want to maybe freak him out. Hey, he's asleep. So let's go see. You just want to, maybe we'll grab a burger on the way. We'll chill out. And then we'll get to the house and see what happens. He's, He's not in a hurry. Can I tell you, God is on his way to resurrecting. And not only is he on his way to resurrecting in the narrative of this story, Lazarus and eventually himself, but God, when he relates to you and I, is always on the way to redeeming what is broken, but he's not in a hurry. Because there's something about the process between the death and the resurrection that gets us to understand the character of God and how he wants to relate to us. I want you to know today, if you're struggling, if you're doubting, if you are fearful, if you are even running from God, he sees you, he loves you, and he is on a process to redeeming every broken thing in your life. He sees you. You fast forward nine chapters. Jesus, he has now raised Lazarus from the dead. Boom, roasted, did what I said I was going to do. Perform miracles. He has now died on the cross. He's risen from the grave on the third day. Now he has already appeared to Mary and to the disciples. We don't have time to go into all of that, but he has appeared to the, to the disciples. We can only assume that it was all or most of them there, but it is significant that John intentionally lets you know Thomas was not one of them. Doubting Thomas, who I've laid out the reputation about who he is, was not in the room. You would think that Jesus would be so wise as to show up when Thomas is there to answer Thomas's doubt. But no, Jesus in his sovereignty shows up when he knows Thomas will not be there. It's fascinating. Sometimes we think God's 
non-answer is something that we did wrong. It's actually he's intentionally not answering you the way that you want because it is all a setup for how he eventually wants to meet you where you think, not where you think you're supposed to meet him, but actually where he wants to meet you. John 20. Thomas, he's hearing the reports. He's cynically skeptical. And he says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I'm committed to staying unbelieving. A week later, the disciples, they're in the house again and Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, put it, see my side or see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, it's you. My Lord, my God, Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to give you five observations from this passage about doubt. Number one, you should write this down because this is significant for me. And I believe it probably is for you. Number one, we love our doubts. We love our doubts. And can I say it even this way? Some of us are in a codependent and arguably abusive relationship with our doubts. That our doubt, anytime it comes in, it puts us in a stranglehold, backs us into a corner, and says, I get to dictate what happens next. And every time doubt enters the room, it gets to dictate what happens. And some of us, we've got to acknowledge the fact, you know what? I've got a broken, codependent, and even abusive relationship with doubt. You ever notice this about yourself? I have, I mean, if I'm honest, every time doubt comes into the room, I become more loyal to it than what I know to be true. I'm more committed to my doubt than I am to my faith. I'm committed to staying in doubt, and unless everything is perfectly laid out, I cannot live in faith. I've got to live in doubt because it seems clear to me. So every disappointment means I'm a failure, my life is over, someone hurt me, people are never trustworthy, trouble in my relationships, maybe I should just end it. Should end the relationship, there's no point in even trying anymore. So doubt creeps in, I must have been wrong this whole time. I put this on the screen because I want you to write this down if it resonates. When unchecked, doubt becomes an inverted belief system with a legalism so rigid it cannot coexist with faith. If you're not careful and you don't check your doubt, and I'm not saying you run from doubt. I'm not saying that it's the big bad wolf. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have doubt. I'm not even saying that doubt is always bad. I'm not even saying that if you have doubt that you're wrong and you shouldn't be here. You're messed up. You should just believe. Just have faith. I'm not trying to say that. But if you're not careful and you don't check your doubt, you don't bring it into its proper alignment with your faith, then it becomes an inverted belief system with a legalism and fundamental, fundamentalism so orthodox that it cannot exist alongside faith. So you know what we need to do? We need to invert it again. And instead of making our faith filter through our doubt, we make our doubt filter through our faith. We make our doubt filter through our faith. And what you, you know what we do? We bring it into alignment with what, not what we feel is true, but what we know is true. Can I tell you, sometimes I have faith even though I don't feel faith. 
And sometimes I have doubt and I always feel it. But the thing about faith that you understand, and we see this in the New Testament in Hebrews, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? The evidence of things what? Unseen. So it, by nature, if you want to do this whole Jesus following thing, which I invite you to, I think you should. I think it's the best decision you could ever make. Can I tell you, you are choosing to walk on water. You are choosing to step out in faith. You are choosing to walk in the unknown. And you are choosing to remind yourself when you do not feel it, what you know to be true, not what you feel to be true. The thing about doubt is it tries to manipulate your feelings to where it can only ever be true. And everything I feel, therefore, must be true. This is what we see with progressive ideologies running rampant today when it comes to sexuality and so many other things. What it's doing is it is maximizing and inflating your feelings and saying this is truth. And the only way for you to discover your true identity is to say yes and to succumb to your feelings. Can I tell you, it is evil. It's from hell. It does not need to... cannot coexist with faith, and it is leading so many people astray. It is time that we started filtering our doubts through our faith. Stop filtering our faith through our doubts. We see this all the time, and we see this in Thomas. He had every chance to solidify his faith. Had every kind of miracle. It took him acknowledging really committed to my doubt. Here's the beautiful thing about God. This is the paradox of it all. Is Jesus meets us at our point of doubt. So as much as we need to filter our doubts through our faith, Jesus is so good that when we are in that locked room of doubt, just like in this story, he walks through the wall and he shows up at our very point If you are in doubt today, God is near to you. If you are afraid today, God is with you. Jesus came and he stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Here's what I love. Here's what he does. He comes near and says, he came and stood among them. He speaks to us. As he said to Thomas. So think about this. Jesus is in the room with the, with the group. He comes in with them, so he's near them all, but then he singles out Thomas. So what Je- Jesus has the ability to do is meet you at the meta-narrative of what you're experiencing, but then speak directly to you and get right to your heart. He skips past. He, he, he mentions it, but then he goes directly to what are you needing? But this is what I love. Then he responds to our need. And this is what we see. Jesus is not present as far as we know. When, when the first time comes around, sees the disciples, you've got Thomas. Thomas is not there. He hears from all of his friends. Hey, bro, Jesus, he, he came back. He did what he said. Isn't that cool? And he's like, unless I see the nails, the holes in his hand, and I touch his wounds, and I can reach my hand into his side, unless I see that and touch, I will not believe it. And Jesus, knowing what Thomas is asking for, 
responds. Notice, though, he doesn't meet the need. He responds to it. We'll get to that. Everything that Thomas mentioned a week before, Jesus heard and responded. So he comes near, he speaks to us, and he responds to our need. This is what we need to understand. Your ugly ugly cry prayers in the middle of the night, where you feel in utter despair, God hears your pain. Here's your cries. The real deep feeling and fears and anxieties that you're feeling right now, the doubts, God feels it. The inadequacy that you feel riddled with, God knows it. The pain that you feel, God, God feels it. He knows it. The shame that you carry from your past or even yesterday or even about how, who you feel that you are on a constant basis. Can I tell you, Jesus knows that shame and he carried that shame to the cross. So every cry and every fear and every doubt and every pain, Jesus knows it and he comes to meet you at your point of pain. What is your pain? What is your fear? What is your doubt today? Young and old, we've all got them. What is it? Can I tell you that when you think about that just for a moment, you think, oh man, I'm feeling this. I'm I'm worried about this. In that moment, that is where Jesus wants to actually meet you right now there. But number three, he doesn't just meet us at our point of doubt. He invites us out of our doubt. Says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting. Stop doubting. Believe. Stop doubting. And believe. This is, this is two Greek words. It's the word apistos and pistos. Same root word going opposite directions. Apistos means this. It's that that word doubting, choosing not to believe, having a faith against belief. This is fascinating. I I, I can't tell you how many people over the last few years, and I've I've been on both sides of this equation, that have become so committed to their doubt that they cannot see Jesus right in front of them. They are so committed to the fear that they feel and the uncertainty of locking onto a belief that Jesus is Lord and that he gets to dictate the terms of their life. They cannot shake it, so what do they do? Jesus is right in front of them, but it cannot be real. I need, I, 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 I need more certainty. I need it to make sense. I need it to fit in my human brain. I need it to make sense. I need everything to be in order because I cannot live by faith. So what does Jesus say here? He says, stop doing that. Stop being so committed to your doubt. Stop making your doubt king. Stop making doubt the thing that you wake up and go to sleep thinking about. Stop doing that. What's the remedy? Start believing. So he says, stop doubting. Apistos. Stop choosing actively to not believe. Stop landing on this and staying here. But what does he say? Start believing. Choose. This is the word pistos means to choose to trust what is dependable. So stop anchoring yourself and being committed to what you feel and start anchoring yourself and your life and your mind and your future and your thoughts and your plans. Start anchoring your life to the thing that is dependable. As we know it today, that is Jesus 
the resurrected, the, 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 the slain and resurrected lamb. Jesus himself. What is dependable? We build our lives on that, not on what we feel. To choose to trust what is dependable, and this is where it comes together. Number four, let confession be your response to doubt. I'll invite the band to come forward as we get ready to close. Jesus said, hey, see my hands and put your hand, hand on my side. And he says, stop doubting and believe. But then get this, get this. This is key. This is key. This is, this is what we got to understand. Jesus said, see my hands, put your hand on my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, he proclaimed in this moment. Jesus, my Lord, my God. And can I tell you, he doesn't even touch Jesus. You doubting today? You afraid? Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you confused? Are you unsure? Are you perplexed? Are you looking at the signs of the times and it is making you shake with a sense of uneasiness? Are you mad at God? Are you at a crossroads? Can I tell you your remedy? Can I give you a frustrating remedy? Confession. And I'm not talking about confessing your sins one to another. Great thing, by the way. I'm talking about what comes out of your mouth. This is what a faith confession is. It is seeing and proclaiming. It is not seeing and still proclaiming. It is feeling it and proclaiming. It is not feeling it and still proclaiming. It's feeling alive and proclaiming the life you have in God. It is feeling dead and detached and still proclaiming life. It is being full of faith and proclaiming faith. And it is being void of faith, feeling like you've got none, feeling like you don't even know if God exists. And in that moment, proclaiming God's faithfulness still. And this is a faith confession. And I tell you, this is not fake it fluff. It's not fake it till you make it. It's not willing yourself into a thing. And I know that we have a tendency as faith people to do this sometimes, to deny the doubt. No, but we know that Jesus meets us in our doubt, but then he invites us out. And so here's what we do. Instead of trying to fake it till we make it, what we're doing is we are anchoring ourselves and proclaiming the truth with the church throughout history that Jesus Christ is the risen God. He is Lord. And in spite of what I feel, he is faithful to to do what he said he will do. He's gonna follow through with his word. He's never going to leave me. He's never gonna forsake me. Jesus is faithful and he will do what he said. And every time I'm not feeling it, I choose to proclaim with the same throughout history, the great cloud of witnesses that Jesus is still God. I don't feel like he's God, but I know he's God. I don't feel like the word makes sense, but I know the word is true. I don't feel like my life is working, but I'm going to keep building my life on the firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. And even though storms will come, the rains will pour, the wind will blow, and I will get some damage on the way, I will remain standing because my house is not built on sand, but on the solid rock, which is Jesus Christ. Christ, him crucified and him resurrected. What do we do? You got to watch your confession. You got to be careful that you don't keep confessing your doubt 
and not confessing what you knew to be true. What do you know to be true? Jesus is Lord. What do you know to be true? He's building his church. What do you know to be true? He's faithful to the end of the age. What do you know to be true? That when you die, no matter what kind of death, that (laughs) this guy would be martyred. I mean, you got Paul. You got Peter. Peter, like, he's a church builder. He's, I mean, he's having healing flow through his hands. You know what he would do? The historians have consensus on this, that, G, that Peter would go on after all of the acts that he would do, and he would go to be crucified upside down. And though they tried to mock him by giving him the same punishment as Jesus, he said, no, do it upside down because I'm not worthy to share the same death as my Savior. What do you call that? It is a faith in spite of feelings, knowing that my hope is not anchored in this life. I've got one coming that will far outweigh the one that I am in now. So kill me, keep me alive, take me down, beat me, give me lashes, mock me on social media, tell me that I'm wacko, tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm losing it, tell me that I'm just not balanced, whatever. You know what? I do not care because my hope is not anchored right here. There is a life coming and it, I will be with Jesus for eternity. So friends, I'm going to build my life now on that solid rock no matter what winds come my way. Number five, it's never what we thought it was. Jesus said, see my hands. Put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Can I I say to some people, the thing that you've been trying to answer, the question you've been trying to answer, the unsolvable thing that you feel like that's what's holding me back is not actually what you need. We see this in Thomas's moment with Jesus here, is that Jesus walks through the wall, he shows up, it's there. And Thomas, what did he say? The only way I'm believing this thing, the only way, I'm so committed to my doubt, the only way is if I can put my finger, and we don't know, but I feel like John was so intentional in writing this that he would have included the touch if it happened. But what does Thomas do? He sees Jesus. Jesus acknowledges where his doubts were. And he says, say no more. You're the dude. You're my Lord. You're my God. Can I tell you what Thomas thought he needed? Thought he needed his questions answered? Do you know what he didn't need was the questions answered he needed the teacher the whole time all Thomas needed all his soul was desiring I want my teacher back I want my Jesus back the one who when I was doubting when I'm walking and I don't know what's ahead the Jesus he stayed with me I I need him back I need that anchor again. God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Did you resurrect? I don't, I don't know. But I can't do this alone. And what does Jesus do? He just shows up in the room. And that was enough. Can I tell you, the thing you think you need is probably not what you need. The thing that you need is the presence of God. 
And the thing that he's been trying to bring you is that presence. What he would promise and eventually deliver. Yes, I'm leaving here, going to heaven, but I will not leave you. I'm sending you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who is God. He will teach you all these things. He'll remind you of everything that I've said. Guess what? You've got my presence everywhere you go. When you move this, make this move from doubt to faith. By the way, this is daily. You can choose today, confess today, and you might even get to feel it. And tomorrow, guess what? You still got to take up your cross and say, though I don't feel it, still I will follow. Though I don't have anyone with me, still I will follow. Jesus, though this day sucks and the sun, it's been away for a really long time here in Washington. God, I'm not losing hope because I'm not anchoring my sense of calm and stability in things of this world. I'm anchoring it in a truth that transcends. You start to realize it was God's presence all along that we needed. Would you stand with me? And what I want you to do is just hold out your hands like this. You can close your eyes. Just hold out your hands. And maybe, maybe you're like Thomas and you've been riddled with doubt. So much so, can I, can I speak to some people? When, when you're in the room, you have a hard time singing or lifting your hands or worshiping or entering in because you cannot solve this thing. And the only way that you'll worship, the only way you can engage is when you feel it. And here's my invitation to you today. We're gonna sing these words in just a moment. We're gonna sing, Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. And we're gonna sing these words with some faith that says, though God, I do not feel this, whether or not I feel this. And can I tell you, God wants to meet you at your feelings too. He gave you feelings, they're important, they're good, but sometimes you will not. And in those moments you say, still I will follow. In those moments you say, still I will worship. God, I'm, I'm anchoring myself to a transcendent reality that you died and you rose. And though I am not even sure that I have the words to be able to prove it, I know it to be true and I will build my life on this truth. Are you doubting today? Lift your hands higher. Are you fearful today? Worship louder. Are you anxious? Are you worried about the future? Sing at the top of your lungs and proclaim and confess the faith and join with the saints throughout the last 2,000 years saying, we are not building our life on what we feel, but on a truth that is transcendent, that Christ, the solid rock, is what I'm standing on. All other ground is sinking sand. I'll build my life on this rock. Can we lift our hands and sing this together? Come on, he's my firm foundation.